Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about communists seizing the U.S. banks, whose fault is Rittenhouse, and stopping the coming race war. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Of course, the Rittenhouse verdict, the follow-on violence around the country, the extremely sad event uh, in Wisconsin of a driver uh, of a red van uh, mowing down a Christmas parade and killing five people. Biggest story in the country. I'm going to spend the rest of the show on it today. But I want to do in the first five today, go back to something I mentioned last week and try to impress upon everyone how important this is. You, we mentioned last week that there was a woman, last name Amarova, uh, and she has been nominated by the Biden administration to, to serve as a comptroller of the currency. Before I get into what she's all about, and as well as the uh, nominee for the Fed chair is all about, I want you to picture this. If back on January 20th, when Joe Biden was sworn in, uh, and sworn in as our president this year, January 20th, if he had said in his inaugural speech, by the time I'm through with America in 2021, you won't recognize this country. I will abandon the border. I will abandon border enforcement. I will so weaken, feminize, and otherwise uh, destroy America's fighting spirit, America's military, that they will be unready. I will turn to the uh, racial agitation. I will work toward racial agitation. I will spread Marxism in this country. I will bring Marxists into power in significant positions in the federal government. If he'd actually said that, if he'd run through everything he was actually going to do, I want you to think how different things would be. If he ran on those things, if he said, look, if I get in there, man, I am destroying America the free and you won't recognize it when I'm done. We're going to have vaccine mandates. We're going to have vaccine passports. We're going to have people threatened with inability to travel, visit businesses. I'm going to turn this country. Uh, I'm going to fill it with tyranny and turn it into a totalitarian controlled country. You know, most people, even Biden voters might have said, you know, I, I, this doesn't sound very good. I don't I don't think you ran on this. But this is exactly what's happened. And I'm getting out. I want to try and the Amarova nomination, among other stories, to get at the point. Don't get hung up. I mean, you do have to know the details, but don't get hung up on each little tree. You know, that, that expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. Don't get hung up on just this tree and just this tree and just this tree and miss the forest. We are watching the intentional destruction, intentional creation of chaos, intentional uh, damage to America's culture, sovereignty, freedom, rule of law, everything good about America. Now let's turn to Amarova. She was nominated, and we talked about her, uh, actually, I didn't do a show all last week, which is very strange. In fact, I think it's the first week I haven't done a show since I started doing shows in 2014. First week, we had just a series, I had out-of-town company um, at my home, and then we had our Thursday guests have to reschedule. So I'm back after 10 days or more and loaded for bear. 
but I want to start in Amarova. So she was nominated by Biden to serve uh, as the, um, uh, as the um, comptroller of the currency. And fortunately for America, she has to go through the confirmation process. We mentioned previously in discussing her uh, that she attended, she, she's uh, you know, pretty much a communist. She attended uh, University of Moscow. She uh, wrote her um, doctoral thesis praising Marx in some way. She won the Lenin Prize. She was caught on tape. I mean, now available on tape saying that the purpose in part for moving forward against closing down uh, the uh, energy suppliers, the coal suppliers, the people who uh, produce coal for our country, the, uh, the energy industry, the purpose is to shut them down to advance the climate change agenda. But I want to focus today because there's something, you, if, if you haven't read this, you need to read it. We linked it at our website, americacanwetalk.org. But in, after this hearing, she was, of course, grilled in the hearing. And after the hearing, U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, he is the, um, he's a ranking member of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. He went through and just provided some highlights of what this woman has said she believes in. And the reason I wanted to loop back to this story today is this. I can picture millions of Americans sitting at home watching uh, COVID and COVID restrictions and, and mandates for getting vaccines, feeling like that's the top issue to them. I can watch as the economy is a mess. When you have every place you go, you have stores, businesses of every kind saying, uh, we're hiring, we're hiring, please apply. We will pay you money to apply. And people not wanting to work. You have the utter abandonment of the board. You have people focus on things that seem right in front of their faces. And they're worried about the supply chain. They're worried about if food is going to dry up. They're worried about whether or not we're going to have enough of our basic supplies because the supply chain's a mess. And I can imagine people saying, okay, so I heard there's some really bad nominee for some job in Washington, but I don't really care because that's not my bread and butter issue. This is why I'm doing this first five. This is your bread and butter issue. Please listen to what this woman, knowingly nominated by President Biden, actually wants to do. And, and go read this yourself. These are excerpts of things she has said. As I said, Senator Pat Toomey, ranking member of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, put this out on his website, linked on our website. First of all, she is, Amarova, is perfect. She's a professor uh, willing to admit that her ideas are radical. She says she's a radical. Okay, well, you know, that can mean a lot of things. She actually said the words, and, and she's, to be clear, the position she is uh, trying to get approved for is in the Fed. It involves money policy, money policy in America. She says we need to effectively end banking as we know it. Effectively end banking as we know it. She outlined her plan for nationalizing retail banking. Okay, still you're thinking, okay, what is you know, Joe at home in Nebraska, what does he care? So Joe in Nebraska, you go to jo your job every day and every week and every year and you work for years and you get your paycheck and you put it in the local bank because you love your little local bank and you've got a great relationship with them and you know your little local bank is going to hold on to your money, provide you a checking account and a savings account and that's how you bank. And you go in there and you say, you know, I've got to use my ATM card, I need to make a withdrawal, I've got to figure out how to borrow money for something. It's your relationship with your bank. She's saying, ah, none of this. Nationalize retail banking. Under her plan, central bank accounts fully replace, fully replace, rather than uneasily coexist with private bank deposits. In other words, 
you can't have an account anymore with your local community bank. Your money would be held by the government at the Federal Reserve. She also talked about the idea that we need to control the money supply through these individual Fed accounts, including when necessary, implementing a, contract, a contractionary, listen, don't, don't lose me here, contractionary monetary policy by debiting those accounts. You realize what she's saying? Your money, you put your little local bank, only under her plan is now in the Federal Reserve's control. When necessary, you would implement a contractionary monetary policy by debiting those accounts. She says, you know, this could be perceived as the government taking away people's money, but that's exactly what it is. She has written about this. She thinks it's a great idea. And these aren't even the worst things. And I'm, I'm going to get to a really big point about America, but you have to understand the details of what this lady is talking about before you can actually get on board with fighting the way you need to fight. She said, she basically acknowledges, yeah, you know, this, my plan would devastate all banks, devastate all banks. Um, she talks about community banks uh, could maybe continue to exist, but only as franchisees of the government. They'd have to qualify for a license to operate physical branches and ATMs on behalf of the Fed. Now, listen to this. This is what she wrote, her piece in a publication, The People's Ledger. One reason, one reason, says she, she wants the Fed to become everyone's bank is to maximize its capacity to channel credit to productive uses in the nation's economy. So you have a freaking communist who wants to be in control of everyone's bank account and everyone's money. And she's saying in part the reason is because that could then, it could then allow her to maximize the capacity to channel credit to productive uses. Who, who defines productive? A communist who is a radical environmentalist climate change person, they define productive. So what's going to happen? You know, you want to have, for example, a loan to, an, uh, to expand an oil and gas research company, to expand other energy companies. That's probably not going to be productive in the world of uh, Professor Amarova. She's, and, and she actually talked about these energy businesses, her words, we want them to go bankrupt. Energy businesses in America, oil and gas and coal, oil and coal, wants them bankrupted if we want to tackle climate change. And she said we basically get rid of these carbon financers if we starve them out of their sources of capital. This is still not the end of her radical ideas. Her radical ideas include a plan for the government to replace the free market. Please listen. A plan for the government to replace the free market in setting what she says systematically important prices. So the government will now set systematically important prices for things like food, food, wages, and energy. So she, her view of this perfect world that she would create includes the government now setting prices and wages. People, if you aren't grasping at this moment that what this woman is doing is a, she's a radical Marxist, she's a radical communist, and she's been nominated by the Biden team to serve an extremely important role in the Fed. This is not some, you know, some you know, academic, bad enough we have enough academics who think this way. This is someone they're trying to put in the position of comptroller of the currency. You know, and she, she actually talked, she had tweeted previously, just a couple of years ago, what a great thing it was that the Soviet Union set prices 
uh, set wages for everybody because then there was you know, no gender gap there and Margaret doesn't know what's best. So please, one last thing before you tune out, she's talking about wages, energy, food prices being set by the government. You have to get what this lady's saying. Taken in her totality, taken in totality, she's talking about a socialist takeover of the banking system in this country. And I want you to think about how socialists think, how the credit score system works in China, how the system works and the government controls things. And that is this, think about these ideas. So in China, there's a social credit score and it, you get rated in all sorts of things, timeliness of paying your rent, uh, whether you did or did not get any you know, speeding tickets or other things that are problematic, whether you comply with the government's demands for vaccinations and boosters. Now translate that into, this is a woman who'd be working for the Biden administration that is pushing vaccines pushing now they're talking about by the way Fauci said over the weekend I think it was that they're working toward getting vaccines for infants and toddlers COVID vaccines for infants and toddlers he's pushing he's fine with mandatory vaccines he's fine with vaccine passports so just imagine now this woman in charge of the policy at the Fed control of the currency saying you know what We've got to incentivize these people who are not in, aren't complying with our latest demand for, you know, the, the booster or the demand for the COVID vaccine. So, you know what? We now control their money. What better way to inspire them than to say, hey, as a matter of fact, you know what? Uh, you really can't have access to your money. Sorry, your, your score, your non-compliance score is too high. You are not doing what the government told you to do. You are not, whether it's going to be COVID vaccination status, whether it's going to be environmental stuff. Have you made the proper changes to your home or apartment building? Have you, are you driving the right kind of car? Are you reducing your carbon footprint? All these things can be measures of you. And then easily, because the money is all in their control and her nefarious communist view, you're going to be someone says, you know, you, you're just you're just not doing the right thing. We're sorry. We're sorry. But you cannot have your money until you do the following things. And now, again, I, I urge you to think about this idea. This is not someone that the Biden administration plucked off the street, you know, and kind of randomly said, hey, why don't you be comptroller of the currency? This person with all of these public views out there printed in video, a, a flat out communist, she passed the vetting process of the Biden White House. Many of you say, I have people say to me after speeches, you know, there's a lot of Marxism in this country, but Biden, you know, he's just kind of a goof. I mean, he's not really a serious communist. There is nobody, there's, I mean, whatever you think about what he really thinks, which I think is very little, I don't think he thinks much at all. What his administration is doing is the most radical, hard left Marxist policies ever in place in America. And to nominate someone like her and to once these videos come to light, and the things she's written have come to light, they're not pulling her nomination. They're not saying, hey, we, we didn't realize she's such a crazy communist. No, they're, they're right with it. They're pushing people. So I'm going to tell you one more thing um, about this situation. And then we have a not quite ready, but we'll soon have a slide ready. But understand what this means to you, Joe sitting at home in Nebraska. You used to be able to go to your local bank and you would 
say, I'd like to withdraw X dollars, I'd like to apply for a loan because I want to you know, expand my oil and gas business, I want to expand my car manufacturing business, I want to expand my car dealership, and your car dealership or your oil and gas business doesn't quite fit into the realm that is now permissible, and your local bank says, well, I, we don't have control of your money anymore, it's all controlled by the Fed. People, there's no clearer sign, I mean, there are many of them if you have your eyes open, but no clearer sign than this, this nominee still in place, that this, we are watching the Marxist takeover of America. Just because Biden did not stand up on January 20th and say, finally, we have seized power, we've stolen the election on top of that, you know, we're, we're, while we're here, we're going to destroy this country before you even wake up tomorrow morning, you have no idea how fast we're going to do this. And they're running roughshod over America in many, many ways. We've been talking about in the show. And they're actually nominating somebody for the control of the currency who actually thinks that these ideas, government should set wages and prices of, of all basic needs. Government should control all banking. Government should actively work, put policies in place to destroy the oil and coal industries. She said these things. These are not you know, maybe in the future sometime she might really get crazy and do this. She's advocated for these things. And she's fine with the Biden team. And you don't even see Democrats in the Senate who have a vote confirming her or not. You don't even see them saying, oh my gosh, this is a flat out communist. What are we doing? They, they either don't recognize it, don't want to rock the boat, are afraid of the uh, media mob, the leftist lunatic mob in this country coming after them, everybody's just on the, on the Democrat side, just kind of go, well, you know, she seems to have adequate education, you know, she can speak English. I, I mean, they're, they're acting like this is a normal nomination. Very few people in the Senate are willing to speak up. Very few people on the conservative side. You can't ignore what this woman is saying. So what I want to urge you to do, um, in fact, right before we get to that slide, one more thing, and then we are going to get off this first five, which is longer than five, but, you know, hey, it's my show. I also want to mention to you that Joe Biden has nominated uh, as a person to become the Fed chair, the chairman of the Fed. And this is someone not in office yet, but uh, apparently soon to be, or they're hoping that she will be. This is Governor Lael Brainerd. Governor Lael Brainerd, uh, she's, uh, and she's been nominated uh, to become the uh, chair of the of the Federal Reserve. So in questioning in 2019, she was asked, this you know, woman's asked, well, you know, she was asked actually in a House Finance Services Committee uh, in September 2019 by Roger Williams, a congressman from the great state of Texas, basically, are you a capitalist or are you a socialist? That's a pretty clear question. I mean, you could have someone saying, well, I'm mostly a capitalist, but, but are you a capitalist or are you a socialist? She would be the Fed chair. That's the job that she's wanting and they're talking to her about. She answered, thank you for your question. I certainly have viewed markets that are well-regulated, that are competitive as providing really important benefits in terms of innovation and dynamism. Okay. And I'm going to read that to you again for a reason. This is her answer. Are you a socialist or a capitalist? It's not a hard question. Thank you for your question. I certainly have viewed markets that are well-regulated, that are competitive, as providing really important benefits in terms of innovation and dynamism. So, Congressman Williams repeats the question. 
very simple, capitalist, socialist. She repeated exactly those words in response over and over. She can't even figure out if she wants to say that she believes in freedom, if she believes in capitalism, can't say it. So um, I just want to make these points to, to get around to saying that these are not um, inconsequential, you know, kind of arcane concerns. These are not some intellectual job in Washington, someone sitting around writing federal regulations. These people have embraced the socialist, Marxist, communist ideology. They believe in it, they advocate for it, and this administration is urging them to be placed in the highest positions of power. Now I want to show you, I get people ask me all the time, what do we do about this? I have a slide I sent to a very wonderful Mr. Becker. You can be part of stopping the Amarova nomination. To stop communist ideas from taking over America's banks and your money, call your senator at that number, 202-224-3121, and demand a no vote on the Amarova nomination to be control of the currency. Leave that up for a second because I'm going to tell you guys something. So this morning I tried that. Um, I tried that number and I said, which is not true, but I just said, hey, I'm, I'm calling from Texas and I don't know who my senators are. Can you tell me? Oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, three seconds later, she goes, yes, yes, yes. Great state of Texas. Yeah, Senator John Cornyn and Senator Ted Cruz. So I'm telling you that because wherever you are hearing this, if you call in and you don't know who your U.S. senators are, they can tell you and then ask to be connected to each of the offices. Ask to be connected, in our case, it'd be Senator Cruz and Senator Cornyn, which I will tell you from the, these people are not going to vote for Amarova. But do it, call from your state, ask who your senators are if you don't know, ask to be connected and say you want them to vote no. And if you were to be pushed, because you get sometimes some of the staffers thinking that you're just a robot call or you're just seeing things you don't know what you're talking about. Before you make the call, go to the, our, our website, americacanbetalk.org, or to Senator Toomey's website and look at the bullet points he listed. Or I'll just tell you some you could say, because I don't think someone should be comptroller of the currency who thinks that the Federal Reserve should take charge of all of America's private banks. I want private retail, local banking. I don't want the Federal Reserve in charge of all banks. That's a simple message. I think anyone who advocates that the government should be setting wages and prices should not be in charge of anything in America's government. You can say that. Get ready for the question. They may say, well, why, why, do you, why are you opposed or what's your problem? Uh, and by the way, her team is already trying to play the uh, ethnicity, the discrimination card, uh, the gender card. You don't like her because she's a woman, because she's you know, not Caucasian. Just don't even get sucked down that path. But understand, this is a, you talk about something that can actually change things, can actually fix things, can actually do something consequential. Having one less communist in the Federal Reserve would be a great thing for America. A great thing to keep out that kind of thinking and a great message to your senators that you are aware of what the Biden administration is doing to America and you want them to stop. It would be a great patriotic step to take, even right now, right before the Thanksgiving holiday, lob those calls in and then tell your 25 best friends to do the same thing. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. Okay, rest of the show on Rittenhouse. And I want to hit a lot of, of topics on Rittenhouse. Um, 
And obviously, I think most of you realize, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, young man, 18 at the time of the trial, 17 at, time, at the time of the events, was charged with five charges, five crimes, uh, for his involvement uh, in shooting incident uh, during the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he was charged with, uh, you know, homicide. He was charged with felonies. And, and there was no question. The, the question of fact was not whether or not he had fired the gun that killed two people and injured a third person. No one was denying that, that those were the case. The, the entire issue the jury had was, was this a case of self-defense? Or was this, as so many people in the media tried to say, that this is you know, white supremacism, this is, a, this is a young white kid mowing down you know, people, uh, crazy acting, blah, blah, blah. So fortunately, fortunately, our founding fathers set up a jury system, a jury system where your guilt or innocence is not determined by the uh, media, who are a major, 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 major culprit in this, in this whole debacle. Your guilt or innocence is not decided by the uh, left-wing mob that seems to control the narrative and so many stories uh, in this country. Your guilt or innocence is determined by a jury who listens to the facts and evidence before you. And by the way, just to be clear about something, so this incident occurred in August, um, so a little over a year ago, and there was a um, um, there was a story uh, underlying this, which you know we had all of the uh, violence in our country, the violence by Black Lives Matter and Antifa uh, in our country um, after the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, but this particular one in Wisconsin. Uh, the violence that rose up had to do with the sh the uh, police um, shooting of another black man. This is different from George Floyd. This is a guy in Wisconsin named Jacob Blake. And I want to take a minute before we get off on everything about Rittenhouse just to tell you a little bit about the Jacob Blake shooting. And my point is in, in doing this is this. Among the reasons we have such a hair trigger reaction, among the reasons there's simmering racial tension, among the reasons that we have just an instant outburst of extreme violence uh, in response to some of these incidents is because we have an extremely irresponsible media in this country that simply will not tell the American people the true story. They run with a narrative. They run with a story that's that, uh, that feeds the left-wing racial agitation, intentional racial agitation narrative. That's what the media in this country does. And there are, you know, it's media, broadly speaking. Uh, and then there are also people who are just public opinion shapers. They're not just elected officials. Some elected officials, you know, local, state, national elected officials. There are people like LeBron James. You know, I, I've been using this public opinion shapers uh, because the acronym is POS and sometimes they kind of deserve that. Anyway, but these public opinion shapers perpetuate a narrative that wasn't true and that feeds racial agitation. So very quickly, if you didn't know the story of Jacob Blake, who's um, shooting at the hands of a police officer uh, was the, um, the immediate incident that sparked the 
protests in Kenosha that led to Kyle Rittenhouse coming to Kenosha. Uh, he lived like 20 minutes away, this overstate lines, and we're going to get you in a minute, but came over uh, to try to defend businesses. That's what he, he tried to defend from this mob uh, burning things down. But very quickly about Jacob Blake. So Jacob Blake um, was the reason the police even came into contact with him was he had a, uh, wasn't his wife, but a girlfriend who was also the mother of his children. She, the girlfriend and mother of his children, called the police to say that Jacob Blake had showed up at her door and was acting in a very um, confrontational way. She was concerned about him. Uh, she, he was demanding to take the keys to her car. Kids were in the car. I don't know if all the kids were in the car, but some kids were in the car and he was going to drive off. And so she, the mother of his children, is the one who called the police. That's why they came to his house. So they show up and um, the police show up. And as they're traveling there, as they always do, you know, they look up who they're, you know, she's told this girlfriend's told them who's there. They look up and then they realize that he's wanted for an outstanding warrant, meaning, you know, some he was arrested and then didn't show up. There was an outstanding warrant for his arrest. And so they're obligated when they come across someone, they locate someone from this outstanding warrant, warrant, they're required to arrest him. And so they did that. They tried to do that. So at this scene at the house, Jacob Blake has a knife and he's waving it around. The police officers are standing around, you know, near the car where he's got the keys. The girlfriend doesn't want him to drive off with her kids in the car. He's acting, you know, pretty uh, confrontational. And the police are yelling at him, put down the knife, put down the knife, put down the knife. They're walking around telling him to put down the knife, drop the knife. Then he, Blake, because he doesn't, he, he knows he's going to be arrested an outstanding warrant. He doesn't want to get arrested. I mean, who does? And so he turns toward the driver's door. He opens the driver's door. Instead of dropping the knife, like the police have told him to do, and again, the police are there because his own girlfriend called the police. Instead of dropping the knife, he turns and opens the car door. And you have to understand, people, it's really, really you know, easy, Monday, you know, they talk Monday morning quarterbacking or, you know, after the fact, looking back. But at the time you're watching a guy who's acting violently, waving a knife around, won't drop the knife and he's leaning into the car. Now, what the police officers have to be thinking is, you know, is he going for a gun? What, what is he doing? Why isn't he following instructions? I mean, I know that, you know, Parents always teach their kids, parents of every race, ethnicity, national origin, if an officer tells you to do something, you need to do it. If they say pull over, if they say show me your license, show me your hands, you gotta do that. Because the officers, police officers get shot and killed all the time by people who won't follow instructions. And it is common, I mean, this is how to avoid a problem. So Jacob Blake leans in the car instead um, and uh, is then shot by the police officers. The, the video doesn't show the, mo the moment when the shooting began, um, but, the, but they realize that he's, he is shot uh, by the police officers who are then surrounding him. Um, I want to just tell you a couple of things uh, that you may not um, have realized about this, uh, this situation. So number one, um, Jacob Blake, I, I want to find this guy's name, and I'm sorry, I should have highlighted it, and I didn't do that. But um, <clears throat> he was shot, I think, a total of seven bullets. 
Um, in fact, the woman who called, the mother of his children called, and what she said to the police was, he's talking all types of crazy, and he's not allowed to be in the premises. His previous bad behavior meant he's not even supposed to be at her house. Not supposed to be there. They look up, they discover they have, there's an outstanding warrant, a warrant for him. Uh, they, they, he, he's evasive, tries to leave, they scuffle with him. I want to point out something really, really interesting. The person who was the first black chief of the Madison, Wisconsin Police Department and an expert in police use of force was brought in as a consultant on this case to be asked, did these officers exceed use unnecessary force? So again, Noble Ray, W-R-A-Y, the first black chief of Madison, Wisconsin Police Department, an expert in the police use of force on incidents brought in as a consultant to the prosecutor said that the officer who fired, Officer Chesky, used an appropriate escalation of force, used an appropriate escalation of force in dealing with a non-cooperative arrest subject. And they're also worried, of course, because the guy's trying to get in the car and drive off with this woman's kids. And he's not supposed to, he's not even supposed to be at her house. So the case has been reviewed by at least what many would have touted as an expert, someone who's you know, looked at all the facts and, and, and who happened to be black and say there's nothing wrong with what this police officer did. And <clears throat> the other thing that, so this, I'm telling all this to say, this incident is what led to the riots in Kenosha. And, and many, many headlines said, unarmed black man shot and killed. Okay, he wasn't unarmed. And if you, I don't, I meant to look up the stats and I didn't before I came, but you know, people are murdered with knives all the time. I mean, knives are fatal weapons. They, they are used to murder people all the time. So to say, well, it wasn't a gun. Yeah, he had a knife and he's in close proximity to the officers and of his children. And so he was armed and he wasn't killed. Unfortunately, he was paralyzed from the waist down. Look, I don't want any instances like this to happen, but I took the time in today's show to go over the story to say this. If we had responsible media in this country, if we had media not driven by an agenda, and if we had responsible people of influence, people who are opinion shapers, public opinion shapers, out speaking up, saying, this is what happened. Jacob Blake was not innocently walking down the street, you know, uh, you know, whistling Dixie. He was waving a knife around at police officers after having been called uh, the officers after having been called to the scene by the girlfriend who's afraid of him to saying he's talking all kinds of crazy and and then he has an outstanding warrant and then he ducks into the car and again please picture if he comes out with a gun that th then what happens so I, again I'm, I'm just saying so much of the tension in Kenosha was created by the failure of media in this country and the failure of the, the uh, you know the public opinion shapers uh, in this country to continue to point out these kinds of facts they just don't do it same thing we've been through michael brown and ferguson people get agitated because they are presented a false narrative by the media which is which benefits from it so i want to then go forward to written house so i'm not going to review all the evidence at written house except to say this is why we have juries it's why we have juries. Juries are supposed to actually look at the facts, review the evidence, or there's a prosecutor presenting everything possible to try to bring about the person's conviction. And we have, at the same time, we have defense attorneys who are actually going to uh, 
<clears throat> uh, present the defense they can. Among the amazing things that happened in this story, and I want to really urge you to think about this, there were numerous times that the defense called for mistrial during the case. Now, some you know, defense lawyers do that, and, and they're entitled to do it, but I want just to have you think about what reasons they had to do this. In this case, it turned out that there was a, you know, the jurors are trying to get to the truth. By the way, I should have said the 12 astonishingly brave, upright American citizen jurors who were functioning in a situation where outside the courthouse, there are, outside the courthouse, there are literally protesters everywhere. There are armed National Guard troops, armed National Guard troops in the, um, in the streets because everyone knows or they're afraid there's gonna be massive violence. So you have these armed national troops in the streets, the jurors, obviously they're worried, thinking they're gonna have you know, something bad happen if they don't convict this guy, the pressure on them overwhelming. You have the MSNBC lunatic supervisor urging one of her reporters to follow the van that drove the jurors away from the courthouse. I mean, tremendous pressure on these people, these jurors, but they did what juries are supposed to do. They looked at the facts. Now, quickly on the mistrial, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make a lot of really important points about this case because this is not just one case. This is a monumental opportunity for everyone to look inside what's happening to America's culture, how, how the left is driven, driven to convince Americans that we just live in a deeply racist society, that, there's just, that, that outrage is justified every single day. So, but the basis for mistrial, so the FBI had evidence in the forms of drones. And so the drone evidence, when the jurors are trying to see it, I mean, and you know how it is on a, on a fuzzy screen, you know, you've, you may have even had your own medical treatments with the doctors going, look, look at this, can't you see this? It looks like a bunch of fuzzy, you know, nothing. And you're like, no, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, they had some pretty fuzzy uh, shots from the drone that show what occurred. Uh, and then there was a very, very much better, crisper and clearer version of that same video that was provided to the prosecutor at the outset of the case or way before the case and as is required by the Brady rule sent to the defense but the defense didn't get that you know they, they got the grainy hard to see can't even figure out what this picture is kind of video only very late in the trial after the trial I think the, the jury already had the case when they realized that the uh, FBI had sent this video, this very clear video, which showed, which tended to prove Rittenhouse's innocence uh, to the defense attorney in an extremely compressed format that they didn't even know was there. I mean, this, okay, so that was one thing was, did the FBI mishandle, failure to, fail to give all the Brady evidence? But the other thing from mistrial, I just have to tell you, because you have the right of, you know, to not to testify against yourself. You, you, right, you don't have to incriminate yourself. You, you can just not testify. So you, don't, you're, you are never to be punished. If you're the accused, you know, the prosecutor is never allowed to say to a jury at the end, well, you know, uh, if this defendant here is so innocent, I wonder why they didn't take the stand. You know, they could have taken the stand. You, that, that is grounds for mistrial, flat out, no doubt about it. You know, you cannot do that as a prosecutor. You cannot call attention to the decision of the accused to not testify. 
So these prosecutors, who I'm sure have heard this rule since first year of law school, uh, got very close to doing that in this case twice. Very close to making allusions to or accusations against this, uh, the accused, Rittenhouse, um, and, and the judge didn't let the person being asked a question, didn't let him answer. But the point is, this was a prosecution, did not, as they're watching this grainy evidence, did not say, hey, defense, by the way, there's a much better version, let, let me give it to you, uh, went out of their way to do as much as they could, pushing, and in fact, the judge, I think, used the expression, you're pushing the line, pushing the envelope or something, getting after these people uh, and pushing the envelope and uh, in, in talking about this person's, um, this, you know, whether this person had a right to not uh, incriminate themselves. Um, I am going to get to, um, but the other thing that happened, I'm going to get to what happened uh, yesterday in the Christmas parade in a minute, but I really want to get to a couple of things that matter about this case so very, 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 very much. Part of what happened to Kyle Rittenhouse was that the media, People, uh, opinion shapers, public opinion shapers, all the way from President Biden down to members of Congress got on a roll before the trial even began, created the narrative in the minds of millions of ignorant Americans that this was a white supremacist action by Kyle Rittenhouse. In fact, I have, I'm gonna quick see which one I have here. Um, I will, uh, yeah, let me just actually show you, um, this is uh, Jerry Nadler, clip two. This is Congressman Jerry Nadler. Yeah, leave that up for a second. So, so first of all, the jury has to listen to all the evidence. That's their job. Listen to the evidence. It's not to come out with a verdict that, you know, Nadler wanted or anybody else wanted. The jury's job is to listen to the evidence. So Nadler, who is a, you know, walking fool, but Nadler, tweeted out after the jury listened to all the evidence, tweets out, this heartbreaking verdict is a miscarriage of justice and sets a dangerous precedent which justifies federal review by the Department of Justice. Justice cannot tolerate armed persons crossing state lines looking for trouble while people engage in First Amendment protected protest. That, that tweet is so evil and so wrong in so many ways and I'm just going to pick on that one as an example. I could pick on numerous other members of Congress. I'm going to show you Biden's tweet. But I want you to think about what Nadler's doing. He has, I don't know how many followers on Twitter, but he is a you know, prominent leftist member of the U.S. Congress, I think for like 100 years or something. He's been there forever. And he's a you know, surly, unpleasant, confrontational leftist. And that's what he tweets out. Put it up again for a second. Would you please, Mr. Becker? The wonderful? I wanted to show something. Okay, number one, heartbreaking verdict. How is it heartbreaking if it comports with the facts? The people, if you don't know the quick summary, you can leave it up to what I'm saying, but the quick summary is the people who were shot by Kyle Rittenhouse were all shot in self-defense, meaning Rittenhouse shot in self-defense because these people were trying to hurt and kill him. And you actually still in America have the right of self-defense. And so the jury said, yeah, actually the self-defense standard is met in all these cases. The third guy who was supposed to be like the prosecution's big star witness, the one who Rittenhouse shot but who survived, that guy, his testimony at trial was, yeah, you know, I aimed a gun at his face first 
I, gained, I aimed a pistol at his face, and only then did Kyle Rittenhouse turn his rifle toward me and shoot me. If that's not self-defense, if you can't count that as self-defense, then there is no self-defense defense, that you can't defend yourself. That was the star witness saying, yeah, he didn't even aim at me until after I put my pistol to his head. And then go, oh, okay, okay. The other two, the evidence was so overwhelming, they were chasing him down. They, the other two who were shot and killed, chasing him down, and Rittenhouse is trying to get away. He's not the aggressor. He's not chasing them down. He is not looking for people to shoot. He's running away, and they're chasing him, and one of them hit him on the head with a skateboard, which I have to tell you, I was reading about that. I mean, you can hit, obviously hit someone on the head hard enough with a, a blunt object. Many, many deaths result from such incidents. So it wasn't like, you know, they called him a bad name and he fired at them. They were physically threatening his life. That's what the self-defense verdict is. Put Mr. Nadler up there one more time, Mr. Becker. So Congressman Nadler, heartbreaking verdict. This is not even anything like a miscarriage of justice. It's the whole way the justice system is supposed to work. It does not set a dangerous precedent. It sends, it sets a precedent that says, yeah, you actually still have the right to defend yourself. And this is, that language he has in there, I'll say one more time, I keep doing that. Language he has in there, justifies federal review by the DOJ. I just want to have you think about this. Now you can bring the camera back to me. So we have the U.S. Department of Justice under the corrupt Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland, who is busy hassling parents who show up at their school board to challenge critical race theory. Nadler is actually advocating that the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland should look into whether there are other charges they could bring against Rittenhouse. First of all, race had nothing to do with this. We'll get back to race in a moment. Everyone involved in the shooting was white. Rittenhouse and the three victims, all white. So there's not even a racial element to it. And yet you had the left piling on white supremacists. I mean, calling this 17-year-old a white supremacist. So I want what I wanted, to, and, and another among the many things the left is doing, I'm gonna hit the white supremacist piece, I'm gonna hit the piece about the gun, because I really want you to think about how outrageous and unjust it was that our, that any prosecutor in the United States of America even considered bringing charges in this case. On the gun part, Kyle Rittenhouse didn't carry a weapon across state lines. That was, he had a, he was temporarily staying with, I think it was his mother uh, across state lines. He came, and you know, when you live really close to a border, like many people in Texas live so close to Oklahoma, it's like, you know, it's, it's just, like a little drive to the store, a little drive down the street, and you're in another state. That's how close uh, he was living. But anyway, he, Kyle Rittenhouse, didn't carry the gun across state lines. He had the gun already in Kenosha. He had many family members in Kenosha, family members in Kenosha, with him, and a family or, or family member or friend had the gun. So he was. they dropped that charge because it was disconnected from reality, had nothing to do with reality. So he, he didn't carry the gun across state lines. But the second point is, I think that it's really important to understand race had nothing to do with the shooting and what the people who jumped on and, and saying white supremacists and calling him that, what they're really saying is they favor and they like and they encourage and they support the kind of violent, outrageous mob violence that was happening in Kenosha that night 
They support that violence. They want mob violence. They want mob violence to happen, even though, as we went over earlier in the show, the, the instance of Jacob Blake hardly justified what happened. At the low end, the, the damage estimated in Kenosha, which is a tiny little town, it's a middle of nowhere little town, was at $50 million, 50 $50 million. Now that may sound low, but you know, it's a little podunk town. That's a lot of damage in a little podunk town. But the white supremacist thing, the reason that Joe Biden used that expression, the reason that numerous other people did, is because it agitates people. It gets people outraged. It gets people worked up. And, and it, was, it has been thrown around by the left so irresponsibly, not just in this case, but issue after issue after issue after issue in this country. They throw out white supremacists. It has nothing to do with the, the facts in the case. And, and all these people should be apologizing to Rittenhouse. In fact, back to the time, okay, so it had to be fall of 2020, the incident has occurred, and there was a debate, Biden and Trump debate, you know, the presidential debate, and there, were, there was a question, I mean, Biden was a little cagey, but there was a question uh, in which the, um, the question was trying to get Trump and Biden to respond essentially uh, about white supremacism, but they lumped Kyle Rittenhouse into the white supremacist category. And then Biden, Biden later said after the debate, well, you know, the president tonight refused to denounce white supremacy. So it was convoluted, but Biden's essentially calling this, for, calling this young man a white supremacist, which is nothing to do with the fact. In fact, he was interviewed yesterday or today, Kyle Rittenhouse saying he actually supports Black Lives Matter. He thinks it's a good or, okay, that's a little loony. But anyway, I want to get the point. This is such a window on America's justice system, America's culture. But the most important thing it's a window on is how hard the left in this country is working to create racial agitation. They are trying to create racial agitation. They are working at it. So I also sent to, uh, uh, Mr. Becker, I sent you the um, tweet by the president, President Trump's tweet, uh, not Trump, President Biden's uh, tweet. POTUS releases a statement in the Rittenhouse verdict. While the verdict in Kenosha will leave many Americans feeling angry and concerned, myself included, we must acknowledge a jury has spoken. So I wanted to say, if the jury did their job and they listened to the evidence and they reached a conclusion that they did, why are you angry? And it's because the left and Biden in particular, they live off of fomenting and encouraging racial agitation. The fact that the jury actually did their job, actually listened to the evidence and, and booted out the, um, uh, and, and found him not guilty on all charges based on the way the system of law is supposed to work, this frustrates them because the left functions by and lives under the narratives that America is a deeply racist country and that you have just, you know, uh, just so much racial agitation uh, ongoing at all times. And, and this, this uh, as far as they were concerned, if Kyle Rittenhouse, who was not a white supremacist, who has nothing in his background to claim that that was true, doesn't have anything that would cause anyone looking at the facts to say that, it blew their narrative that that was Rittenhouse, another example of this flagrant the white supremacy all over the country. So Rittenhouse's lawyer has called for Biden uh, to apologize for calling him a white supremacist. I'm sure he's not going to do that. But there are other people who got involved, these public opinion shapers. Another one is a, a congresswoman named Cori Bush. And I think I sent this to Mr. 
Yeah, I did. Corey Bush's uh, tweet. Now, she is a pretty much a Marxist member of U.S. Congress. And again, please remember the facts. Kyle Rittenhouse did not kill any black people. Kyle Rittenhouse, after a jury of his peers listened to the evidence, was found not guilty of all charges because he was acting in self-defense. Kyle Rittenhouse was a young man who went down to Kenosha and, and, and you know, people were saying, well, he should have stayed home. Well, frankly, so, so should most of the protesters have stayed home. If they'd known the, case, the facts of the case of Jacob Blake, if they understood that he was being looked into, but they, we just have this hair, now put that back up. I'm sorry, I'm gonna to get to it. So Cori Bush, this is a member of Congress, and she says, the judge, the jury, the defendant, she says, is white supremacy in action. And people, there's nothing white supremacist about this. And then she says, this system isn't built to hold white supremacists accountable. It's why black and brown folks are brutalized and put in cages while white supremacist murderers walk free. I'm hurt, I'm angry, I'm heartbroken. People, I w leave it up for, yeah, put it back. I want you to think about for a moment, you know, you're, this is a, a U.S. Congress, member of Congress. This is a, someone who has some sphere of influence and in some group of followers, and she's calling this verdict white supremacy in action. Nothing that Kyle Rittenhouse did had a, it was uh, you know directed toward Black Americans. Yes, he was deciding that he wanted to get involved in trying to protect the city of Kenosha, the businesses of Kenosha, the innocent people of Kenosha against what was an escalating riot in a summer in which our country was filled with riots and destructions and murders at the hands of Antifa and Black Lives Matter. He shows up to defend. She calls him a white supremacist. And I really want to, I want to lay at the feet of people like Cori Bush, Biden, the media. I could have spent the entire show showing you CNN headlines and other media outlets that judged a young 17-year-old man before ever knowing the facts, having no clue what the truth was, never having seen the evidence, but they labeled him a white supremacist. They had the whole railroad going, the whole idea that they're gonna railroad this guy and he is going to end up convicted and we don't care what the facts are. And I have to tell you, this is, the, this is you know, calls out and, and calls for us to remember and rejoice in the beauty of the creation of America and the idea of the justice system we have. Because in the same way that everyone is entitled to a presumption of innocence, the same way that everyone's entitled to have a jury actually listen to the facts, same as Kyle Rittenhouse was, so is every black defendant in this country, every black man accused uh, in a case where he actually was acting in self-defense. The, the beauty of our system, I was you know, colorblind, is we have these, these enormously consequential guarantees in the Constitution. Uh, you have the right to tri trial by peers. You have a right to have competent representation in a council. You have the right to testify against, testify or not testify in your own case. You have the right, the Brady rule to see the evidence, all these protections built in to make our country the, uh, the, you know, to make the justice system as fair as it can be. Is it perfect? No, no justice system ever in the creation of America's history has been perfect. 
no justice system. But our country has produced the best. And I wanted to spend a bit of time today. I will tell you, I can't get to the rest, much of what happened uh, then in, I think it's pronounced Waukesha, uh, Wisconsin. But yesterday, of course, there was a, um, a, general, a black driver of a red uh, SUV just literally at the Happy Town Christmas Parade with little children and costumes and Christmas and, you know, that dancers and, you know, just people getting all happy because Christmas is coming, literally mowed through the crowd, drove through the crowd, um, and he um, killed five people. Uh, there are over 40 injured in the hospital. Apparently, some were between two and five more children in critical condition in the hospital. And that driver has now been arrested. Um, he was first defined as a person of interest. I think he's been charged. Uh, but in any case, uh, he's a black man in Wisconsin. And if we're going to hold America, if we and the, the lovers of America, the lovers of the Constitution, the lovers of the idea of a justice system is colorblind, in this case, right now, all we know about this guy, that I, but as of the time we came to on air today, all we know about him is that he has a long, long criminal history. He was just let out of jail like the day before one of these idiotic programs the left has where they get rid of bail or, or they provide a very low bail and so bad actors who committed many violent crimes bad actors will rap sheet a mile long get arrested again show up at jail show up at court and get released that's who this guy was so you can blame the left you can blame the left for the fact that a guy like his was even free to do such a thing but I want to encourage us all, because I want to get to it, a very short final segment, get to what we can do about all this. We have to understand, we have to recognize the left is trying to stoke a race war. You, in the same way as I'm telling you at the start of the show today, when you have Biden nominating open communists, open Marxists, open socialists to positions to run the Fed, to run our banks, to control our, our country's banking system and your money, the left is fighting. It's like, that's that one tree. Another tree is racial agitation. The left is working to create racial agitation in this country. The idea you could not have the uh, statements out of every member of Congress and, every, and the president and all these people of influence who are shaping public opinion saying, you know what? We have to recognize that the victims were all white, the shooter was white, the jury saw the evidence, they decided that there was not guilty, and all those people should have kept quiet from the beginning, not tried to label this young man, this uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, a white supremacist, before he even stepped foot in the courtroom. He's almost like he entered the courtroom convicted in the minds of most Americans. I, I want to urge you to recognize the racial tension we're feeling in this country is not organic. It is not because we are a deeply racist country, rife with systemic racism, institutional racism. It is because there is an intentional movement by the leftist Marxist agenda in this country to stoke racial tension and racial agitation. And so I have a 30 second final, I have a final topic I call stopping the coming race war. And I want to just hit it this way, stopping the coming race war. In fact, I, I, don't, I don't want to have that title up because I want to call it stopping the coming race war. Please understand the left will work as hard as they can under the entire Biden administration to agitate America along the lines of race. That's why they have critical race theory coming in schools. It's not 
thank you, Mr. Becker. Um, it is not designed to promote racial understanding. It is designed to pit Americans against each other. Critical race theory is designed to encourage young students as young as kindergarten through the end of school that they should judge everybody else by the color of their skin, that everybody who happens to be black is a victim, everyone who happens to be white is a, is a suppressor, is a supremacist, is somehow evil and oppressor, and there's no way to fix that thing. There's no way to fix that, that you're just stuck in these racial categories for the rest of your life. This is the point. This is the point of the, um, the CRT agenda. The left knows it. Uh, you have some people who are just innocently going along with it. They don't know it. They are like Lenin's useful idiots. But you're going to see more and more racial agitation, intentional racial agitation, labeling Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist from the White House on down to members of Congress and, and opinion shapers around this country is an evil, evil thing. So if you want to stand up, if you want to stop the coming race war, which is, the, which is uh, which, where the left is headed, we have to rise above the racial, the, the entire racial agenda. We who love America have to, have to surround ourselves, have to, uh, you know, where, where our core is, is not one color versus another color. Our core is the ideas of America. Our core is the ideas of the founding of America, the, the, the noble ideas of America, we, of a country uh, found the idea we have rights from God because you were born, that you're all created equal, that we all have the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that we have a right to a fair trial, we have a right to presumption of innocence. We've got to unite around those things and really get confrontational. Get confrontational with every single leftist who tries to claim everything that, that occurs is racist, that, that uses, that slings around the white supremacist label too easily, that sling, slings around racism as an accusation for everything they don't like. We have to become confrontational. Not confrontational black versus white, confrontational about defending America and denying the lies the left is spreading about this country. Deny the lie. Deny the lie that America is institutionally racist, systemically racist. No, we're not. No, we're not. That is not what America is. It's not what America is right now. It is a great and noble country. Yes, do we have some people of every race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color who are racist? Yes, sadly, it's a human condition. But America needs to plead not guilty, not guilty to the accusation the left are flinging toward our country. When leftists label America as systemically racist, as, as you know, institutionally racist, as filled with white supremacy, please understand it's not somebody else they're accusing, it's you. You have to understand, the left is trying to divide us by race. You cannot respond by allying with one race, line up with one race versus some other race. Get higher, get above that, stand up for the ideas of America. Stand for the same protections in the justice system that protected Kyle Rittenhouse and gave him the right to have a fair trial with a jury who listened to the evidence. Those same protections protect black Americans, Asian Americans, and people of every skin color, race, ethnicity, and national origin. It's the ideas of America's system that will protect everyone. Jerry Nadler, Cori Bush, every other elected official who is calling this unjust, calling it white supremacist, need to be the recipients of your ire. You need to be calling them out. Call them liars. They are racial agitators. They are trying to create racial tension. Do not let this kind of situation just, you know, just kind of hope we get past it. 
when you see the kind of things Corey Bush is saying and Jerry Nadler, and I'm picking on those two, but there are hundreds more, call them out into on Twitter, on Facebook, call their offices, stop saying this about America, because you have to understand, just as the left is pushing Marxist ideology, and from the start of the show, I mentioned what they're trying to do in the Fed, they're also, they're using race to divide America. Marxists historically divided societies and conquered them by using economic arguments about, you know, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Today's Marxists are using race as a means to divide America. You have to grasp that. You have to see what they're doing in those, in the, that light, in those, in that worldview. They're trying to use race to divide America. And the best thing Americans can do is refuse, reject, refuse to play their racial agenda, unite around the ideas of America that include every single person in America, regardless of race, ethnicity, and national origin, stand up for this country, stand against the racial agitators, call them out, and demand that truth be told about America, which is, as I always say in the show, America's most extraordinary gift to humanity ever to bless this earth. It's our job to protect it. At the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started today, a blatantly Marxist nominee, Biden nominee for control of the currency, uh, I don't know, Soleil, I think it is, Amarova, is an open avowed Marxist, Moscow educated, thesis on Marxism wants to effectively end banking as we know it. Banking regulators should control the economy, says she. A new unaccountable board should allocate tax dollars, not elected officials. Senator Pat Toomey, Omarova may be the most radical leftist nominee ever appointed. Never lose sight of the entirety of the Biden cabal agenda, a Marxist takedown of America. You have to understand what you're seeing. See the forest, not just the trees. Flooding the border with millions of illegal immigrants, shipping them all over the country, gutting the U.S. military, destroying U.S. energy independence, pushing spending to levels that stoke hyperinflation, leveraging COVID toward totalitarian mandates, radical nominees to key positions. None of this is a mistake or a product of incompetence. It is deliberate. Do enough Americans care to stop it? And then Kyle Rittenhouse, the gap between solid, clear evidence and the left-wing media narrative was enormous. And the left-wing narrative included a flat-out lies labeling Kyle Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse as a white supremacist with no ties to the Kenosha community. Truth was, zero evidence Rittenhouse was racially motivated and his dad and many other members of his extended family lived in Kenosha. Self-defense evidence clear from the beginning, no charges should have been brought. Post-acquittal comments from the left have been astoundingly ignorant, but they reflect unthinking acceptance of the media's lying narratives. Um, I didn't even get to this story, but a university actually posted the lamenting the loss of two beautiful black lives that, that Rittenhouse took, which of course didn't happen. Uh, the two people killed at Rittenhouse were white. One was a convicted pedophile, just released from a mental hospital, who drove 40 miles to Kenosha to riot. ESPN commentator laments this is all because of Jacob Blake's death. Uh, Blake is alive. Uh, and timeless wisdom, when the media lies, all hell breaks loose. America needs a radically reformed media committed to honesty. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Like a crashing wave. Can
talk. Truth about America.